Listen, we've got a, uh, we're on this series called This Changes Everything. We're on our second installment here, um, and we're continuing the story in John because we believe that what Jesus does is he makes things change. He changes the meaning of things, and this change changes the way that we think, the way that we move, and the way that we act. And I think it's always significant because oftentimes in life, we'll have this thing that I like to call a come to Jesus meeting. You know, it's one of those moments, and I think I've referenced this idea before. It's one of those moments where you realize like after this interaction, after this interchange, after this learning, after this experience, maybe it's a worship experience, maybe it's something else. After all that, life will never be the same again. And the reason why I call it a come to Jesus meeting is because I believe that when you have one of these comes to Jesus meetings, your church trajectory changes. And you might be a plumber, right? But now you're a plumber with a purpose. You might be a teacher, but now you have more than just education as the focus of your life because you have a purpose that transcends that. You may be a doctor, but healing is not the only reason. It's healing towards a relationship with Jesus. And the truth is this, Jesus wants to, to, he wants your trajectory to match his trajectory. The life of Jesus is the great invitation that we belong to him and we walk with him as opposed to creating our own way of moving and living and have our being. Now, there's this thing in North America. I think, you know, Americans grow up with this sense of, I want to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. That's something that we really kind of lean into. And listen, I grew up in an entrepreneur's home. My mother had her own business and, and she built it over 35, 37 years. And there were times when it was great, times when it was harder. As if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you've got, you know, really fat months and really lean months. But, but she, I think, I think my parents always kind of leaned and, and appreciated it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but they love this idea that they were self-made people, that they had created their own kind of economy and their own, and it's a beautiful thing. But you know, the longer that I live in faith, the longer that I, I, I'm on this journey with Jesus, the less I want to be a self-made man and go on my own trajectory, and the more I want to be a Jesus-led man. That's the life that I want to lead. And, and for me, that's really important. And I think, that, I think that the disciples were kind of confronted with this as they were coming in contact with Jesus. We're continuing our reading of John chapter 12, and it begins John chapter 12, verse 20. We're reading from the New Living Translation. They have that in the, in the Bibles that we have in the, in, the, in the seats. But it starts like this. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you that question before. Have you ever been asked this question? And you probably have not been asked it in those particular words. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe the way that you've been asked this question is, hey, um, I feel really lost in my life right now. I don't really know what to do. Or, you know, I feel really alone. I wish there was a community. I wish there was another purpose in my life. I feel like I don't really know which direction I'm supposed to head. You know, these are the ways that people ask this question. The pulpit in the first church that I worked in, in the La Mesa church, um, this was back when it was still kind of a traditional church. And it had, it had one of those like for real pulpits. Do you know the kind I'm talking about? Like you've got the pulpit with the one section and then you've got the pulpit with the two other sections beside it, like two transepts on the pulpit, like that's how serious they were taking this thing. Um, and that pulpit, I, these pulpits are always strange to me because they have all these shelves in them on the back side. You know, you see like the nice thing on the front. As you preach, they have these shelves. And I was like, what are those for? Are those for snacks? 
Like how long, am I, how long were they preaching back then? Are these for snacks? Are these for extra notes that they needed to have? For a change of clothes maybe? I don't know. I was always confused as to what those were for. But in this pulpit in La Mesa, they had this, they had this, um, this plaque that they put right there. And it, as you walked up, it said that they would see Jesus. And it used to create a lot of anxiety in me that that was my job when I stood up to the pulpit. And then after a while, I realized, no, that is my job. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I thought, wait a second, I feel like this is wrong. Philosophically, I had an issue with it because this shouldn't just be me looking at this plaque. This plaque should really be on the pulpit looking out at the congregation because it's that all of our lives, through all of our lives, people would see Jesus. So maybe you haven't been asked that question in a very particular way like the Greeks did to Philip, but it was real. The story continues like this. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus, like, if this was okay, right? John 12, 22, Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Maybe they were surprised that people didn't know who Jesus was. Maybe they were, they were excited that somebody wanted to meet Jesus. And, and as you know, until this time, Jesus had been relatively hesitant. I mean, he was preaching, he was healing, but it wasn't time for him to be glorified and to God, for God to be glorified through him. So he's always a little bit hesitant. So in John chapter 12, 23, we see what begins to happen. Philip tells Andrew, but in John chapter 12, 23, Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. And so he's all in. Before he had been kind of hidden, there were times God took him away from crowds so that he wasn't lifted up, but now it's on. Jesus was always hesitant, but today things are changing. He is all in in. He is following God's will a hundred percent. And when you finally decide to follow Jesus, you have to go all in. Jesus is not the savior of half measures. He's not the savior of almost or close enough. He committed himself to his destiny. Can you commit yourself to the destiny that God has for you today? That's the question. And um, listen, this week I went surfing. It's been a while since I've gone surfing, honestly. Um, you know, and, and I called up, I, we, Mike and I were talking last week and I was like, man, we need to go surfing. He's like, yeah, man, let's do it. Because Mike is the most positive person. Like he's positive, he's smiling, and you're like, yeah, we should go, you know, empty a sewer. And he's like, yeah, man, let's do it. That'll be awesome. Like, it's not awesome, but he somehow makes it. So we talked about it last week. Um, we said, yeah, Monday morning, that'd be cool. Let's go Monday morning early. And so on Sunday, he, re you know, he reaches out and he's like, yeah, man, we, we still going? And like, I was like, oh. Because like, that's early. The water's cold. I don't, I don't know. But I, like, I didn't want to disappoint him. He's new here. And I could tell when he texts, he's smiling. Like I can tell when you text, you're like, yeah, like I know that that's the feeling that comes through. I don't know if you could see what was coming through when I did. I was like, yeah, yeah. All right. Like, but you can tell Mike just has that attitude. I so appreciate about that. You, about you, about, about that, about you. That's what I appreciate. So thank you. Um, anyway, so we get up, we drive down there. Great time. We're having a good time. And we surf for two hours. Mike catches like 15 waves. I, I, I catch one. One, just one, just, just one. Um, because it had been a while since I've been surfing. And when you surf, you know, you start paddling in. And first of all, I'm just out of shape. So I'm like paddling like, oh, it's not worth it. Um, and then the second one comes, oh, I'm tired. Um, but also because I would maybe sometimes get right into the pocket where the board's beginning to 
plane, you know, it has to go down a little bit. And as it would start to go down, I'd be like, oh, no, no, no. You can't catch a wave halfway. Like you're either in it or you're not. And when you're not, you're like, oh, and you look around and everyone's like, mm, you're horrible. And you're like, yeah, I'm bad at this. You know, Mike's super encouraging. He's like, you got it. Oh man, I thought, and I was like, I am not as excited as he is about me missing this wave. But, but when you finally decide to follow Jesus, you have to go all in. I mean, listen, how many of us just toy with God's will in our lives? Like we're not all in. We're not really all in. We're very comfortable with where we've come to in our lives of faith and in our lives in general. We're like really relaxed. We're really good. like we are couch Christians. Christians who are like, this is pretty good. I've got a house. Everything's going pretty well. I can sit on this couch and be happy. I'll go to church once a week and that's pretty good. I enjoy my time there. The music's pretty good. I like the coffee. Like we're good. This is good. But how many of us are just toying with this concept of, of following Christ in our lives? Jesus continues in verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now, this is commitment. This is what you have to do on a wave, right? No half measures. And in fact, he starts the sentence, not I tell you the truth, even though that's how we translate it in the New Living Translation. The way he says it is amen, amen, amen. He's saying truly, truly, like for real. This is as emphatic as he can get. For real, this is what's going to happen. The kernel has to die so that other kernels can be born. Those who love their life in this world will lose it, says the next verse. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. So what is more important to you? This life or the life that Jesus wants to give you in eternity? Now, wait a moment here, Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians. When you hear that, what you hear is, yes, when Jesus comes, we'll start our life in eternity. Stop that. Stop that. Because your life in eternity begins when you accept Jesus Christ. Right? So your life does not begin when Jesus comes. Your life begins when he comes into your heart. That's your eternal life. So we have a tendency to be like, yeah, that's going to be great. At the end of time, when it comes, I'll be faithful, which means for most of us, we translate, I'll, I'll keep Sabbath. I'll, I'll be faithful. And then when Jesus comes, then life in eternity will begin. If that's the way you're living, stop it. Because you're not living. You haven't started. You have not started your eternal life yet. That begins when you accept Jesus into your heart. And listen, let's be clear. If God is willing to go all the way for you, are you willing to go all the way with him? Which means, by the way, you will be uncomfortable. And maybe I'm making you uncomfortable now. You're like, come on, it's a nice day. I was just coming to church because that's what I need to do. I need to check it off my list. I don't need you to challenge me. I don't need you, I don't need to be yelled at. Like, relax, Pastor Tim, you've done this twice already. You would think that the edge would have come off already. Maybe you're hungry. I am hungry. But I still have some things to say. Right? Listen, maybe you've just heard too many sermons. Maybe you just had too much information. And so you're like, yeah, yeah, it's washing over you like so many more words. My question to you today is, are you willing to commit? Because he was willing to commit to us. And, and he says it like this in the next verse in John 12, 26. He says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the father will honor anyone who serves me. And by the way, this is the way Jewish people argue, right? They argue 100%. They're not arguing like, maybe I'm going to argue this and maybe I won't be right. They're like, it's you either agree with me or you're dead. That's how the argument happens, 
right? And you, it's, it's a pain to argue with anybody who's like that, who doesn't see any reason. I have been told in my life that at times I may be that person. But see, I just feel like I'm smart enough that if I know I'm wrong, I'm not going to get in an argument. And if I know I'm right, let's go. Now that works until I argue with my wife. And she is always right. I just need to accept it. I just need to accept the fact. And it's not that she's always right because I give her that. She's way smarter than I am. Anyway, we'll continue on. So let's ask the question, what does it mean to be with Jesus? To be where he is? Because, I mean, that's difficult. We don't see him. Sometimes we don't feel him, don't hear him. Or is it that just we're living our own lives and we need to somehow invite him in? Well, I I think we can break it down like this. The first thing that you have to do, first thing that you have to do, if you're going to be with Jesus, is you have to be willing to be with Jesus. Now, I know that's not rocket science, right? And we all have that friend who's willing to go, right? That friend you call up at three in the morning, you're like, let's go to Vegas. And they're like, yeah, let's go. Like, will you take me to the airport? And they don't even ask if it's LAX or not. They're just like, yeah, we'll do it, right? Because you know, you judge your friendship on how far you got to drive somebody to the airport, (laughs) right? So he says, can you take me to the airport? I'm like, well, which one? Like Ontario, like, I like you that much. (laughs) Palm Springs, yeah, I can go get a good meal while I do it. LAX, I better love you. (laughs) A lot, because that's my version of hell right now, if you ask me. He's driving to LA. There have been times I've offered to pay for somebody's Uber just so I don't have to sit in a car with them for three hours. (laughs) It's funny, because it's true. Um... So let me, give you the, let me give you an example of somebody who's just willing. And some of you may have heard this story before. I apologize. But one time I was flying into Seattle, hit the ground, turn on my phone. Um, and because um, that's what I do. I wait till we land and then I turn on my phone, as far as you know. And, um, and so I, I started to get all these text messages and I got text message from the manager of the band that I used to play in. And I, so I hit him up. I think I called him. I was like, hey, man, what's going on? He was asking me a question about something. And he's like, oh, dude, I'm sitting here with the guys from Switchfoot. We're in Seattle. We're hanging out at a Starbucks. They got a show tonight. I was like, I'm in Seattle. And he's like, yeah. I said, yeah, I just landed. He's like, well, come on down. I was like, oh, that'll be awesome. But I got to fly to Wenatchee. And he's like, where's that? And I was like, I don't know. It's in Washington somewhere because I was doing a week of prayer at a little school out there. And so, um, so he's like, well, dude, change your ticket and that will be awesome. And I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. So I go to the counter and I'm like, hey, I'm wondering how much would it cost to change my ticket from tonight's flight to tomorrow morning's early flight so I could still get there in time to speak at the school. And the lady goes, oh, it's $550 because United. <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't do that. And so I started leaving. Then I thought, oh, wait. And I said, hey, What if I were sick and I couldn't get on the plane? And she said, well, that would be free then. I said, oh. And she said, are you sick? And I went, (coughs) and she said, good enough for me. And she changed the ticket. so, so that's not even the point of the story. This is when it gets weird, right? This is when it gets weird. So I don't really know anybody in Seattle because they're like, I was like, you know, Mark, hey, will you come pick me up? And he's like, no, I'm hanging out with the guys from Switchfoot. That's way cooler than going and picking you up at the airport. See, he's not my willing friend. Um, so the only person I know is my wife's uncle and his family that live there. They live about 10, 12 minutes away from the airport. So I don't know, it's like 7.30 at night or something. And I call him up. She gives me his, um, she gives me his phone number. I call up Uncle Don and I'm like, hey, 
hey, Don, what's going on? He's like, oh, hey, I've never talked to him on the phone before, right? It's her uncle. I just, I'm, you know, related by marriage and he tolerates me. I'm like, I'm like, hey, Don, how you doing? He's like, hey, man, what's going on? I was like, listen, I'm at the airport. I need to, I need to ride downtown. Could you do that? And this is what he said. I kid you not. This is 100% verbatim. He said, let me put on my pants. I'm coming. I feel like there were two parts of that sentence. One part I really agreed with, one part I really didn't know what to do with. But luckily, he just hung up. He was like, let me put on my pants, I'm coming, click. And I was like, I'm glad you solved that problem for me because I had a lot more questions that I was gonna ask you. Anyway, so 10 minutes, 12 minutes later, he shows up at the airport. I'm just standing there with my bags. He shows up at the airport. I get in the car, we chit chat, we go downtown. I'm about to get out at the club where the band's playing. He never asked me why I was in town or why I needed a ride, ever. He's just like, just having a conversation. How's Sarah? How's the kids? And the whole time I'm thinking, maybe he's going to want to know. So we get, and he literally just pulls up on the side of the road. There's all this line of people. And I'm like, all right, man, thanks. And he's like, you need me to pick you up? And I was like, no, I feel like you'd have to be in your pants for too long. It, uh, <laughs> no, I was going to get a ride back to the airport. Anyway. Anyway, I was like, Don, do you care why I'm here? And he's like, I don't care. You said you needed a ride. <laughs> Be that kind of willing with pants. <laughs> Be that kind of willing. Right, because when you're that kind of willing, you also means that you're willing to be uncomfortable, which is the next thing that it takes to be with Jesus. I mean uncomfortable, I mean self-sacrificing. Jesus was never comfortable. Is there anywhere in scripture, by the way, is there anywhere in scripture that someone followed God and life got better? Followed God and life got easier, it got more comfortable? That is, that is not in scripture. That's just not there. I don't know how you could believe in the prosperity gospel. Like, that's crazy. You literally have to read the Bible backwards and upside down to believe that God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Like, that doesn't work that way. Every time somebody came in contact with Jesus, their life got harder, things got more difficult, and for God to bless them, they had to really be inconvenienced, right? And the problem is, what we've done is we've created this, we've created this culture of convenience in our lives. And as Christians, we have bought into that. We assume that following God means everything is going well in your life or that everything is easy in your life. That's just not biblical. It is just not scriptural. When you are following God, you have got to be willing and ready to be inconvenienced. And for too much of us, for too much of our lives, like it's really like easy. And you know what we do? We even do things. We actually sociologically put things in place so that our lives can be even easier. So what we do is we gather around ourselves, people who believe just like we do, right? So we don't even have to worry about other people who might not understand what we're talking about. We create our own language. We create our own culture. We create everything. And then you know what we do? Then in this group that we have, we fight a lot. And then some of us feel like we're being super courageous because we're fighting for things like, oh, I don't know, equal treatment of women. And we're like, yeah, look at us. We're super progressive. Well, humanity would tell us we should treat people like humans. But what we do is we think we pat ourselves on the back and go, look at me. I'm being so courageous in my little tiny group of people. Or we treat people with a different orientation. We say they're welcome here. And then we look, at our, we look around and go, look how wonderful we are. Because what we've done is we've created such a myopic culture that we don't even know what it means to be human anymore. We're not even, we're so far away from being courageous. And listen, Jesus was courageous 
in light of God's will, which was very difficult. You have to be courageous to be a Christian. And if you've never had to be courageous in your life, who are you following? And what are they calling you to? Because you do have to be courageous. You know, to make a decision to get into a baptismal tank is a courageous decision. Those of us who grow up in faith, we don't think it's courageous. We think it's just the next step in what we're supposed to do. But if you don't grow up in academy and in Christian schools and in Christian colleges and in Christian medical schools, if you don't grow up in those areas and and you don't understand why faith makes any sense at all, to make the decision to become faithful to Jesus Christ is giving up everything to do that. It is an incredible statement of courage to stand in a baptismal tank and say, I will give my life, this life that I thought was my own, it's no longer mine. I give it away. That is courage, friends. So if you've never had to be courageous in your faith, if you've gotten too convenient and too comfortable, I want to do this. I dare you to become uncomfortable. I dare you to become courageous for your faith. Now, just to be clear, becoming courageous for your faith doesn't mean being combative for your faith. That's annoying, right? Because we all know that guy. Well, don't quote scripture like a dagger. Stop it. They're not little missiles that we send towards people to teach them that we're right. I mean, be courageous in the way that you love. Be courageous in the way that you get hurt for the love that you've given to somebody who might not deserve it, who has hurt you again and again and again. Listen, Jesus is even dealing with this, right? Jesus is dealing with it and he's processing it. John 12, 27 says this, now my soul is deeply troubled, says Jesus. And then he goes, should I pray? Father, save me from this hour? Should I pray that? Which by the way, he prays later on. Hey, you wanna take this cup from me? No? Okay, I'll take it. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? And then he goes, no, but this is the reason, the very reason I came. This is simply courage, not shying away from the call that God has given you. It takes courage to follow the call of God in your life. It does take courage. It takes patience to follow the call of God in your life. It takes a clarity of the bigger picture and a willingness to do what you don't want to do in the face of hardship because you have to. Because you have committed to following Jesus Christ and to be where he is. John 12, 28. Father, bring glory to your name. And this is an interesting part of the story. He looks up and he's like, okay, I'm not going to do that. Father, bring glory to your name. I think that was a surrender again. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven. And by the way, this didn't happen very often anymore. In the Old Testament, we hear the voice of God all the time. In the New Testament, very few times. And in the intertestamental period, the time between when they wrote the Old Testament and they wrote the New Testament, between that time, God was silent. And so they didn't recognize his voice anymore. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, and I love what he says. He says, I've already brought glory to my name. I've already done it and I'm going to do it again, right? It's almost a dare. I'm going to do it again. When the crowd heard this voice, some thought it was thunder. And I love the fact that God's voice is like thunder, right? Some was like thunder while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Now, the reason why they put that in is because in that time when God was quiet, they created a pretty phenomenal and very complicated system, theological system of angels and demons and, you know, hierarchy of angels and this and that and the other thing. And so that's why they went there because they weren't used to hearing the voice of God. And the problem was God's voice is tough to hear if it's not a whisper, because it sounds like thunder. See, God had been silent for so long, they didn't recognize the voice. And I love what Jesus says. Then Jesus told them, that voice, for your benefit, not for mine. That's for you, not for me. I know what his voice sounds like. But you better get used to hearing it again. 
And then he continues on in 1231. He says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And I get it, modern Christians. You don't like to talk about Satan. None of us like to talk about Satan. I get it. There's concern that, you know, I'm going to sound antiquated or, or I'm going to sound like a zealot or an extremist. And it's deeply unmodern to think of this concept of Satan. Sure, that's fine. And you're going to believe whatever you want to believe when you leave here because that's what we do. However, if we're concerned that there is more in life and we believe that there's more grace, more love, more, more time that God grants us, if we believe that there is more in a positive way, then we kind of have to believe that there's more in a negative way as well, that we believe that there's more evil in the world too. I don't know what narrative is yours. And I don't necessarily think you have to have Satan to have God. I'm not, that's not my philosophical bent, but I do know this. In the narrative that we get through scripture, there's someone who doesn't want you to be close to God, who doesn't want you to follow God. And by the way, if you figured out your life and you're so convenient and so comfortable that you're no longer being tempted by anything, that you're no longer struggling with your faith, that you're no longer worried about anything, if that's true, then Satan's not bothering with you and that should concern you. It should concern you if Satan has nothing to do with you because you are not being used for the kingdom because you decided complacency is better than courage. But regardless of what you believe about Satan, the next verse is more. There's more power. There's more victory in it. And it's more important. You know, people get stuck on Satan too much, and I understand that. That's a problem too. Or not at all, which can be a problem. But the next text makes it all moot in the end anyway, because this is what he says, and you all know this text. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. When Jesus is the one who is lifted up, everyone will come. And by the way, when we came back into pastoral ministry, that was a commitment that we made, that we would lift Jesus up, that that's what this church would be about. We would be about the, the elevating Jesus in the lives of those who want to be with us. And, you know, we were 100 people, 150 people the first few weeks. I think it goes to prove that as you lift Jesus up, because this is not us. It's not the music. It's not the coffee. It's not the lights. It's the fact that we lift Jesus up. That's why you come. That's why you're here. Right? The other stuff is fun. We like it. It's good. We should do it well. But that's why you're hungry. And we wanted a place where that hunger could be satiated. And of course, when Jesus was saying this, and John explains it in the next verse, he said this to indicate how he was going to die. Jesus was talking about the cross. And by the way, don't underestimate the power of the cross. All right, we focus on the cross on Easter. And it's like that time when, when Christians get to go, oh, that's right, Jesus, that's right, he died for me. He wasn't just a good guy, like he died for me. But the cross is a thing that we always have to keep in our minds because the cross is the apex of our faith in, as Christians, right? Everything flows up to it. Everything flows down from it. It is the high point of who we are in faith. Everything that we believe has to be put into the shadow, has to be held up next to the cross in order to know if we should even believe it. It's really an important because it's the defining moment of what Jesus did. And now it's interesting because the, the crowd is listening to what Jesus is saying, trying to figure out, and they actually go through some of the process. In John 12, 34, it says this, um, the crowd responded, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say that the son of man will die? Who is the son of man anyway? You see, they're trying to work it out in their own way because in their theology, he was going to save them and then he would never die. And Jesus is like, oh, you don't get how this works. And so he explains it to him in the next two verses. Jesus replied, my light 
will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can. And this juxtaposition between darkness and light is something that we've seen time and time again in the book of John. Walk in the light while you still can so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they are going. Jesus proclaimed himself to be light of the world and had called people not to walk in darkness. He did this back in chapter eight. He actually did it in chapter one as well. But you know, in chapter nine, there's the story of the blind man. But unlike that blind man who gained his sight, these people were in real deep, imminent danger of becoming just as blind as those unaccepting Pharisees who were criticizing the former blind man that we saw in chapter nine. Jesus wanted us to walk differently. He proclaimed himself to be light of the world. And the way that it works, as we finish up in John 12, 36, he says this, put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you will become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. So the idea was this, rather than his being the only light that shined, because he left, that light is dispersed between every single one of us. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but if you shine a light on one thing, one way, there's a shadow behind it. But if you shine a light 360 degree, if that light comes dispersed all around that person, there is no shadow anymore. So who are you surrounding with light? Who are you pushing away the darkness from for them as they struggle with it? The question today is simple. Do you have the courage to go where Jesus goes? Do you have the courage to live your life that way? Or are you wanting to continue to be couch Christians who are comfortable? Not to be inconvenienced with your faith. You should be scared. We should live on the edge, on the margins of what we call faith. Because that's where Jesus always went. He was never comfortable. He was always courageous. So how are we going to follow him and never be uncomfortable? It doesn't work that way. Now, we're moving up to Easter, and we keep saying this. We want you to bring somebody to this church. We've made a pledge to you that if you bring somebody to this church, they will not be weirded out. They will come and experience a wonderful experience of Easter. But that's going to be uncomfortable for some of you because you're going to have to step into that. You're going to have to step in to asking someone if they want to see Jesus, if they want to come with you to church. It may be one person, it may be two, it may be a family. I don't know what God is convicting your heart of. But we believe that this is important because if we are to expand the kingdom of God, we've got to be uncomfortable. And you know what? Just so you know, it's uncomfortable for me to ask this of you. And if it's uncomfortable for you, it's because we've sat in churches for too long that haven't demanded that we go and be courageous for Jesus. So we have to be. Because the kingdom of God is not furthered simply by me standing on this stage. It is furthered by you willing to be courageous every single day for the kingdom of God. If you're not willing to, I get it. That's uncomfortable. I get it. But then you need to ask yourself the question of, are you willing to commit? Are you willing to take that wave that God is calling you to? Are you willing to go the whole way? Because it won't be easy. I'm not going to promise you that. It might not even be joyful. It might be painful. It might be rejection. It might be, honestly, it might be the worst thing that you've ever done. It's not that hard in light of the cross. You may suffer a little, but he suffered greatly. 
So now we give all that we are. And by the way, you pray this prayer, you say, Lord, I want you to, I want you to use me to touch somebody for you. In the next two weeks, Lord, I want you to open up someone's heart and open up my eyes to see their heart being open so that I can, I can share with them who you are and I can bring them or even have a conversation. Even if they don't come, the conversation is enough. But if you pray that prayer, God will answer it. And when God answers it, you are really stuck because now you got to do it or you have to go back on that promise you just made to God. And by the way, you'll know. You'll know. And I guarantee you in the next two weeks, I will get emails from you going, I wish you wouldn't have made me pray that prayer. And again, it might end poorly. Not everybody accepted Jesus, but you did. Not everybody accepted his sacrifice on the cross, but you did. So it does work sometimes. And there are people whose hearts are open. So the question is simple. Do you have the courage to go where Jesus goes in your life today? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Jesus, your grace, your mercy, your power that we see experienced through the Holy Spirit, through worship, that we see overwhelming in our lives. Some of those things are the things that make us comfortable, Lord, but I'm gonna ask that you continue to make us uncomfortable. You inconvenience us. That we live on the margins of faith where we think we might not be faithful enough. We're not sure because, Lord, that's faith, not being sure but hoping and praying and leaning on you and your understanding. Lord, push us there because it's only by the edges that something expands. It doesn't expand from the middle to get bigger. It expands from the edges. So Lord, let us be on the edge. Let us push those boundaries of what your kingdom is and how your kingdom affects those around us and our communities that we live in. Lord, it's a big ask this year, but it's no bigger than what you've asked of us. So Lord, be faithful because that's what you do. And we will follow because that's what we do. Accept our praises today, Lord. Amen.